Okay, so I want to ask you a question, as I feel like I, I think I do almost every sermon. If I, ha- if I asked you, who is the gathering of the local cho- church for, uh, who would you say? Now, I'm going to rule out an answer. You can't just use Jesus, because that's true. That's the ultimate answer. We gather ultimately for Christ, for God, right? That's the ultimate answer. But however, I'm speaking more of secondarily, who, is, who do we primarily gather for? Who is the church made up of? What's, what's supposed to happen as we gather? Have you ever thought about that? Those are questions that we kind of just assume we don't really maybe think about or dig into. Are we primarily a place for unbelievers to come and to listen and to be converted and to grow? Is our main focus specifically to be on Christians as a church? What's our main focus here? Do we gear our services mostly for non-Christians or for Christians? Do we... Think mostly about believers or about unbelievers as we gather. How we do those things and how we figure that out. I don't, like to, I don't really like to name names. Um, I don't think I've ever done that. Um, but if I ever name a pastor who I recommend, I do that. Um, I do want to name someone who I don't recommend. Um, so not to be mean or to be a jerk, but um, I would not recommend him. Uh, about 15 years ago, uh, it's a mega church now. It doesn't mean he's bad, but he is not a helpful pastor. That's in Charlotte, North Carolina. His name is Stephen Furtick. And I remember hearing bits of this sermon, like on something. He preached a sermon about 15 years ago, a series of sermons called Confessions of a Pastor. So it's things I wish you could hear that pastors would just love to tell you, right? Um, they're no longer accessible. You can't find them. I, I tried to look. You can't find You can find little bits and pieces because they delete them for a good reason. Now, in this sermon, uh, he mocked his own congregation, complaining and desiring for him to preach deeper, to disciple them more. Now, I'm going to read a couple quotes. Um, they're a little shocking. They're not like vile, but they're a little shocking, so I'm going to read them to you. This, this is during a sermon, okay? I watched this part. If you know Jesus, I'm sorry to break it to you. This church is not for you. But last week I gave my life at Elevation. That's the name of his church, Elevation Church. Name. Last, night, last week I got converted, he was saying. Well, last week was the last week Elevation was for you. You're in the army now. If you want to be fed God's word or have the Bible explained to you, brace yourself. You are a fat, lazy Christian. And you need to shut up and get to work. Or you need to leave this church because we only do evangelism. It's on a Sunday morning. So his focus is that their church is specifically for unbelievers coming, getting converted, and going out. Now, I can appreciate zeal. You want to do that? I, will, I love evangelism. I'm excited for it. I'm all about that. I can appreciate that. However, he's extremely off on what the gathering of the church is for, what his role as a pastor is, and on how we should fulfill our calling in evangelism. Do you remember what Jesus told Peter in John chapter 21? So after Jesus rose from the dead and he meets Peter, do you remember what he tells Peter three times? He asks him if he loves him, right? And Jesus, and Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, right? And Jesus says this. He says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. So even just from a simple text like that, it's clear that the local church is specifically, primarily, gathering for sheep, right? For Christians. So we gather to scatter. That's where you come, right? You come here to go, right? But you come here first, and then you go, right? I would put it for you that God's design for the local church is that believers would come to hear the voice of their shepherd, as we just sang. Through his word, through singing, through praying, that we'd come to love the brothers here. We'd receive communion and baptism. We'd see those things. 
we confess our sins to one another, pray for one another, rejoice in the finished work of Jesus. That's what we, that's what the church in Acts did. That's what we're supposed to do as well. And then we go from the first day of the week here, and we go, right? It's the first day of the week, and then you take off, right? Full sprint. So the primary gathering, I believe biblically, for the local church is for believers because God is among us in a special way. So how do we do that? What's that look like? What is that entail? How do we talk about it? Well, I think this text is very helpful. And as I said, it's kind of a difficult passage, but we'll define things again if we need to with tongues and prophecy as we go. But my hope is to show you uh, what the church is for and why it's that way. Okay, I hope it's, hope it's clear. So just two points, kind of a uh, shorter text today, but number one, the gathering of the church. Look at verses 20 through 23 of 1 Corinthians 14. So first, Paul helps us to think. Look at verse 20, which is good because we're here to think and to understand. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. So right off the bat, Paul calls his, the Corinthians brothers. If you remember just the context, the church in Corinth, uh, they're rough, right? They, they have a couple rough edges, to put it very gently. And Paul's been correcting them and rebuking them about their gatherings, and now he's being very affectionate. He says, brothers, because Paul loves the church in Corinth. Despite their corruption and their rebellion, he actually, he actually does love them, right? He calls them brothers. He's not angry. He actually has love for them. And Jesus, likewise, Hebrews 2 says, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. So Paul says, brothers, listen, listen, right? This is supposed to be an encouraging. And he does this by speaking the truth to them, right? Speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4 says that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. So love is supposed to be correcting, and love is also to be truthful. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the, do you remember? Truth. So love and truth are twins. They're inseparable, right? So therefore, in love, Paul is going to rebuke and redirect the church at Corinth. And just a side note, as a Christian, we must speak hard things to one another, but you have to do it in love. We don't want to be like Peter and just draw our sword and hack off a guard's ear, right? It's not how you do that. You do it in love, right? There's a difference between wielding a blade like a surgeon and wielding a blade like a warrior, right? One's come just to hack people up. Surgeons, yeah, they cut and they cause pain, but it's, it's to heal. It's to mend. It's to, to love, right? That's how we should wield the truth of the word. We should never be like swordsmen, but like a surgeon. So this is what he says. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, be mature, right? So think, reason, seek understanding. The Corinthians were speaking in tongues. If you remember, they're speaking these languages, like four languages, with no one to interpret. So it's just a madhouse, and they're just confused. Oh, isn't this right? Should we be doing this? Paul says, don't be like children. Don't, don't be immature. Think, uh, does it make sense to you? Where do you... You're confusing everybody. Don't be foolish. Think maturely. It's worth noting here that Paul says, if you're going to be a child, be a child in that which is sinful, right? So the Christian faith, then, is a mature thinking faith. It's not, Christians are, are empty-minded. They're not hollowed out. They shouldn't be, at least. We're not swaying back and forth like seaweeds at the bottom of the ocean, right? We're not just going with the culture and just kind of drifting around, right? We, we actually do think. We should. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's why we think, because the Bible stands forever. The truth stands forever, right? But, Kale, I don't agree with that. Didn't Jesus say to turn and to become like children? You're telling us to grow up and think, but Paul's saying, 
be mature. Well, didn't Jesus say to become a child? Or didn't he say that, right? He did say that. In Matthew 18. So do we need to have child mature faith, like a, like a teenager faith, kind of mature, but childish? But how do you, how do we think? How, how should Christians think? Mature-ish? The Christian faith is to be childlike, but not childish. Do you catch the difference? Not childish, but childlike. So faith receives with an empty hand what God gives to us in Christ, right? It humbly accepts, just like your children. They, this is true. Okay. They just accept it, right? I mean, oftentimes they argue, but they often accept it, right? That's the point. They believe it. They trust it, right? So maturing faith, then, of, of a Christian, it's not silly. It's not aloofness to truth or to discipline. Instead, it's mature. To, it's actually a, a stronger belief in trust, right? So as you grow as a Christian, you're not growing away from faith. You're actually growing in. You're pressing in, right? So then the marker of a mature Christian faith is growing in humility and dependence. Not the opposite. We often think that, well, if you're really mature, you don't need any help. You get all figured out. No, the Christian life is the opposite. A mature faith grows, no, I actually need a lot more grace than I thought I did, right? Paul said, I'm the chief sinner. Really, Paul, you are? Then I must be very, very bad, right? So a maturing faith is not growing independent, but growing more dependent, right? That's a faith that unites us to Christ in Romans chapter 5. And in the gospel, God gives us more than childlike in, um, innocence in the gospel. In, in Christ, we have not childlike innocence, but we have the righteousness of Christ as we read this morning, that he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So therefore, a, a mature Christian faith is childlike, but it does think. It sees everything with Bible-colored glasses, right? So to be mature in your thinking, so... What is his basis? Well, secondly, Paul helps us to see. So first, he helps us to think, and now he shows you, well, here's where I'm getting this from. I, I want you to see. Paul wants you to actually understand where he's getting it from. And it, it, just, just a side, remember what Paul is doing here. He's unpacking what place do tongues have in church, right? He's, they're saying, well, we should all be doing it. Paul is saying, no, 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 slow down, brothers. Think. And now let's look. So now he's going to take us actually to the book of Isaiah. He's going to show you. He wants you to think, right? To think mature, to think not like a child, but to think, okay, let me figure this out, Paul. Help me understand here. Like verses 20, 21 through 23, Paul helps us to see by showing us, right? So he quotes an Old Testament passage, verse 21. In the law, in the Old Testament, it's written, by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me says the Lord. So he's citing Isaiah 28. Just a real quick thing, what's going on in Isaiah. The Lord is telling his people, you don't listen, which if you, if you remember Israel, they don't ever listen. God has to say everything twice because they don't hear it. So he has to say everything twice. They just don't hear it, right? He repeats it over and over. So instead of sending another prophet, God says, you know what? I'm going to send you to a people that you don't even understand. What does that mean? Well, it means that they're going to be captive, right? There's going to be the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to surround them. So what he's saying, what Paul is saying, or what the Lord is saying is, when you hear another language you don't understand, because you don't understand what I'm saying, that's a sign of judgment, right? So if you're hearing a language you don't understand, because they're, they're captive, they're in a foreign land, they're stuck. So hearing this tongue is, oh, this is bad news, because now we're stuck. Now we're captive, right? Do you see the connection Paul is making? If in the past, a foreign tongue and a language they didn't know was a form of judgment for unbelievers, 
What must tongues be for now? Look at verse 22. Thus, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, right? That's what Paul is saying. If you look at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost or Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius or Acts chapter 19 with the disciples of John in Ephesus, tongues happen when he's, uh, in these moments, and they are instances that are outside the gathering of the local church, and they're specifically uh, maybe for seeing conversions, for seeing unity between Jews and Gentiles. Overall, it's happening with unbelievers who become believers outside of a, a gathering, right? That's the point. That's what Paul is trying to say. Meanwhile, in Acts 2, when the disciples gathered, they listened to the apostles' teaching. They prayed together. They had communion. So there is certainly a difference between what happens in the church and out. That's what Paul is getting at. So Paul is helping the Corinthian Christians to see that tongues properly in, the, in light of how they gather. Tongues, not prophecy. There's a difference, right? And they, one is for unbelievers and one is for believers. Look at verse 23. I, I appreciate Paul's humor. The Bible does have humor. You just got to look for it. Look at verse 23. If all then speak in tongues and outsiders or, or unbelievers enter, mine says, will they not say you are out of your minds? Think about that. If we're all speaking in different languages here, different, you know, Chinese, German, a uh, little Spanish over here, and someone walks in, they're going to say, you're a bunch of nuts. Do you guys even know what English is? No, we're not speaking that here, actually, right? Just, they would be confused because you're speaking different languages, right? They would literally say, you're out of your minds. So Paul's saying, they, they should because you, you you're crazy. Don't, don't be immature like that. Tongues are actually for them. So, but here's the confusing part, or maybe it's helpful for you. So if tongues are for unbelievers and an unbeliever walks in, what do you think Paul should have said or would have said? Well, then speak in a tongue, right? If it's for an unbeliever and they walk in, shouldn't we switch? It's not what Paul says. Isn't that interesting? That's not how he thinks. He lays forth that assumption, it seems like, but he says the gathering of the church is primarily for believers. The gathering of the saints, the brothers, those who love Jesus, the bride, the body of Christ. These are all the same people. And Mark Dever said this, the church is primarily, I think the word primarily is helpful, primarily a body of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through faith in Christ alone. It's a collection of people committed to Christ in a local area that constitute a church. So very simply, the church is people who love Christ, been converted, gather together. Simple, right? the visible gathering of people who love an invisible God. But it's interesting that Paul assumes that if an unbeliever walks in, you don't stop and gravitate towards what they want. Well, if they're here, what would they like us to do? We should do that. Paul doesn't say that. He actually goes the opposite way. Don't do what they want. Do what you should be doing, right? You've probably all heard these, these stories, and they're nutty, and unfortunately, they're very, very true of past so-called pastors and churches who have pastors zip line from the second story all the way onto their stage uh, that give away cars and cruises. If you invite people, you, you get a ticket for a car. You can maybe win a car in church. Uh, they raffle off cruises, or maybe they play even non-Christian music in the foyer. Uh, they do exist. Paul is saying, and biblically here, if a church attempts to be worldly, you will only make worldly converts. That's just that simple, isn't it? Remember, Paul calls the Corinthians not to shift their gatherings, but to stay where you are, which we'll talk more about that later. Ironically, if we seek to help felt needs of unbelievers, 
We just push them further into unbelief. Sorry, microphone. Right? Well, what are they? Well, they want this. Well, let's keep giving them that. I don't want to change their diet. Let's just keep giving them what they want. There's a difference between being an attractional church by saying, let's just get them here any way we can, versus being attractive. You can be attractive and do the right thing, right? It's the difference. The Bible tells us, actually, what unbelievers need. Do you know what they need? What do they need? They need to be made born. They need to be born again, don't they? They need conversion. They don't need a handout. I mean, look, love them, duh. Like, come on, seriously, easy. But they don't. We, we know what they need. They need to be born again. They need to be made spiritually alive. They need to be reconciled to God. We don't want to bait and switch. Hey, if you come, we'll give you a car, and you gotta take Jesus too. Like anybody would come for Jesus in a car, right? I sign me up. I want a car. But we can't bait and switch. It's been said before, and what you win them with, you win them too. What do you want to win people with? Christ. If you win them with Christ, what do you win them to? Christ, right? If you, if you win them with fun things, what are they only going to want? Give them truth. Do, do you understand that? So as a church, we, we offer only and continually offer the infinite, the glorious reality that God himself reconciles people to himself through his son. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, adoption. It doesn't get any higher than that. That's, that that's, that's it. You get Christ. He's the chief of blessing, isn't he? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Isn't that interesting? When you, when you preach truth and you sing truth and you act truthfully, People will come to see, what are they doing in there? I want to see what's going on. That's how you draw is by truth, not by baiting the hook, right? Number two, the glory of the church. That's the gathering. Here's the glory of the church. Look at the second half of verse 22, and then we'll pick up further on. So what then is so unique about a church? So I get it. We're all believers gathering. That's supposed to be the point. I understand that. I get it. But what makes the assembly of the church so different, so lovely? Well, first we gather around the word of the Lord. Look at verse 22. So again, thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, remember, we talked about prophecy being a way of speaking truth, biblical truth, that as we look in the whole chapter, Paul says it gives instruction, it builds up the church, it's encouraging. Just simply put, it's, it's the Bible. Right? It's, it's truth, whether it's preached or you speak it to your neighbor or you apply it to someone's situation. It's biblical truth, right? We don't just make it up. It's biblical truth, right? So prophecy is for believers, right? To de- and the word prophecy means to declare before people. It doesn't just mean future thinking. It actually means to declare before somebody. So that's good we think about it as well. So that's, that, therefore we declare the word, right? Just think of the Old Testament prophets. Who were they sent to? Did God send them to Assyria? Did he send them to Egypt? Well, no, he sent them to his people, right? Israel, always, because they need to hear the word of the Lord, right? It was for them specifically. So too in the New Testament. Sheep need to hear their shepherd. So the church is where we as sheep come to feed. They come to be mended by our shepherd, fed by his word, mended by his love, built up by his spirit, strengthened by his power, encouraged to continue in the faith. It's kind of like every day, or every Lord's that we come to rehearse the gospel that we already know. Why is that? 
because we forget it over and over and over. We need to hear it every single week, every day, honestly, right? That's why we come. We forget it that often. So look at verse 24. Paul says this. Because of that, what if all prophesy? Well, Paul says, well, but if all prophesy and unbelievers, so here's the same scenario. This time we're all prophesying, not tongues. We're all doing what we're supposed to be doing. An unbeliever enters, or an outsider enters. He's convicted by all. So he's not saying you're all nuts. Instead, it's almost happening, right? He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. So something different happens, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God. So it's very different, right? When they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, someone walks in, what happens? He didn't say, hey, you nuts, right? Bunch of trail mixing. Look at all, all these nuts. He doesn't say that, right? He's converted. Isn't that interesting? He's convicted. He's called to account. His heart secrets are disclosed. They're born, right? You see them, and he falls, and he worships the Lord. So when the Spirit wields the word, he brings forth a response. Jesus, by his Spirit, overcomes our unbelief by the word, right? Do you remember the book of Genesis when God created everything? God created um, plants, okay? How did God do it? Did he get a bunch of seeds and just shake them and throw them? What did he do? He spoke, right? And the spirit was hovering over the face of the water, so he was there, right? God spoke his word, the spirit gave life, and fruit sprouted, right? Well, that's how conversion happens. The word of God speaks, spirit hovers, forth comes fruit, right? That's conversion. That's how God does it. So then, how does a sinner bring forth fruit that is pleasing to God, which is repenting and believing? How does that happen? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of, you know who? Christ, right? It's this word that brings faith, that brings eternal life. Not edited version of the word, not softened, not altered. We want to bring the the unkind, rugged cross. That's what we want. That's what changed us. That's what changes the unbeliever, right? That's our only hope. So what is this picture that we see? If you look at what happens, he, he, he's convicted. He's called to account. He falls on his face. What's, what is, a, is this a picture? Well, it looks to be a picture of conversion. Very simply, a picture of being converted. Let's just slowly unpack what conversion looks like. What's it like for a son to be born again? Well, Paul gives us kind of a little bit of example right here. First conviction of sin, right? So when you're talking to someone about the gospel, or when someone's not a believer, you want them to be convicted of their sin, right? You would never send a healthy person to a doctor. You only send a sick patient to a doctor. Well, what if they know they're sick? You got to tell them. You got to show them their disease, right? So you show them who God is, just like Jesus did with, with the rich young ruler. He has. He went through the law with him, right? Romans chapter one through three says that God shows us that God's the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is holy, and I am not. Okay, great. So I'm not like God, so what does that mean? Well, you're called to account, right? So this is the next step, Paul says. Meaning, we can't just speak about sin vaguely. Uh, this week I was talking to a young man at, uh, um, last, was this, it was this week, at the Excelsior Springs gym. He was just sitting by himself. I just thought, well, I'll just go up to him. and Maybe he was doing homework. I can't tell what he's doing. And we got to talk about the gospel, and he just said, well, I know that I sin. Well, I think we all know that. But that's, you know, well, no one's perfect. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I agree with you. Have you ever told a lie before? Like, not just sin in general, but what have you done, right? If we go to specific sins, kind of like Jesus and the, the woman at the well. 
that woman's not your, or that man's not your husband. He just, it stung, right? She was called to an account, right? So we bring up the law. We ask people about sin and just, you don't have to ask them every question of their life, but ask them about sin. Charles Spurgeon said this, they will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. So sin or the law is like the, the, the needle that pierces and the gospel thread comes behind it. So you got to sew with the needle and the thread, right? You can't just give them grace. You got to give them the law as well, right? Talk about sin before you talk about the gospel. Romans chapter 5 talks about Jesus dying for us while we we're still enemies. You see there's a good mix there of both enemies and Jesus dying for us. Then lastly, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall and he will worship. This is what happens when the spirit convicts, right? Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? Revealing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So your hope in evangelism is not how good can you word it? Or well, what if I don't say the right things? Well, you, you might not. But your hope is in the sword. That's, that's the word. So use the word, right? Wield the sword. Bring up the Bible. Use Bible verses. Talk about the Bible. Actually use the text, right? And Jesus says in Mark chapter 1 that you're supposed to repent, repent and believe the gospel. So call them. Friend, you need to respond to the gospel. You need to repent and believe Christ and he will save you. That's this very simple gospel. God gives a new heart. They will respond, repentance and faith. They will fall on the ground and worship. Right? That's, that's the idea here. Repentance in the Christian life, it's not being perfect, but it's a change, right? It's not perfection, but it's a change in direction, right? It's, I still have sin, but I'm not living in sin, right? I've heard said before, um, sin is not the president. Sin is just present, right? That's the idea as a believer. You're always repenting. You're always changing directions in worship, right? And faith is receiving the work of Christ. It's a present resting and trusting. And what, what this young man did is what many young people have done. That. I've talked to just people in general. They'll say, well, um, are you a Christian? Yeah, I got saved when I was 12. Okay, are you a Christian now? Well, I got saved when I was 12. It's, uh, the Christian faith, it's, it's not a historical faith. It's like, well, I was converted when I was 12, and I, I don't have any fruit now. That, well, that's, that's just not conversion, right? Conversion is, are you presently trusting Jesus? Yes. That's what you look for, right? You look for a present, not a, well, I, I did a long time ago. It's the present resting, a present trusting. So are you? That's the question you need to be asking. Secondly, and briefer in this text, is verse 25, the last part of 25. So, we gather around the word of the Lord, and we gather around the presence of the Lord. So look at verse 25. So this newly converted guy just, just walks in, hears the word, gets converted. Woo, cool, all right. He's now a believer. And look what, look what he testifies about, about the church, therefore. He will declare that God really is among you. Isn't that stunning sentence? You think about the temple in the Old Testament. It was unappro- unapproachable except for the chosen Aaron, Aaron's bloodline, they had to be cleansed in water, atoned for by a substitute. You just even get close to the temple. Well, 1 Peter says that, Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're granted grace to draw near to the Lord as a priest in that sense, right? Therefore, the gathered church is a place where God specifically, specially dwells, not in a building, right? He isn't sleep in the attic, Right? But he dwells specifically with us because we are believers. There's a special presence to how we gather together, right? 1 Corinthians 6 says we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. But here Paul is saying if you gather together, he's, he's here in a special way. There's evidence that he's here, right? God is really among you. 
So the glory of the local church is not because of who we are. Nothing to do with us. We're fallen, wayward sheep. The glory of the church is because Christ dwells here through his word, through the spirit. So this is why the church is the most beautiful place on earth, this side of heaven. It's more worthy than the Grammys. It's more important than Congress. It's more significant than the Super Bowl. I want to ask you a question. How high is your view of the church? Is it that high? Jesus didn't come to die for a government, a government entity. He didn't call that his, he didn't call school his bride. You know who called his bride? It's the church, friends. That's such a high calling. There's no other gathering like the body of the church. Whether our brothers in China who meet secretly underground under threat of death every single day, or those who meet here like us openly together, there is a special beauty of the local church. God delights in the church that exalts Jesus, so should we. So may we not then fit the gathering, fit the church into our schedules, rather fit our schedules around the church. Do you hear the difference? There's a big one. The first day of the week should order our other days, right? Hebrews 10 says not to neglect the assembly, so let's make our effort to assemble, right? That's, That's our call here. So you see that the glory of the local church is where the word is preached and where God dwells, especially because of that reason. The church then is primarily for believers. So, very quickly, very simply, two applications here. How then does that change who we are or what we do or how we think? It should. How do these two things take root in our church as Christians? Well, it's very two simple. Number one, uh, church membership. Church membership. Terms like the word Trinity, uh, Bible, discipleship. If you go to back your Bible in the glossary, you, you look for the word Bible, you're not going to find it. Or Trinity. Or discipleship, that's okay. Those words aren't in the Bible, but they describe biblical realities, right? We use those words to describe things we see. Well, same with the phrase church membership. That, word, that phrase isn't actually in the Bible, but we see it all throughout, right? Especially here, Paul assumes it like crazy all through this letter. There's a regular people that gather together, together, regularly, habitually, weekly, right? They believe the word, receive the spirit, they are baptized. If you look at chapters 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians, we see that. Membership then is assumed. It's those who regularly gather that identify with that body, right? A church then is like the members of your house. Who belongs in your house? Well, I certainly hope it's you and your family, right? Yes. Yes, Kale, that's where I live. Good, right? Who is welcome to come into your house? Well, anybody that you you let come in, right? Can a stranger come in? Well, sure they can come in, right? But you... You invite them, but they don't usually just walk your door and say, hey, can I come in? You want to invite them in, right? And if they want to have the benefits of the house, you give that to them. You give them the right to partake as a member of your household. Do you hear the analogy there? That's how the church works, right? We welcome non-members, obviously, but to have the, the right of a member, to have the things that members specifically do, you need to become a member, right? You can't just walk in and jump in, right? Become a member, right? Without membership in a church, it's like having a gate with no fence. You can wander through the front door, just kind of wander around, go out when you want to, go in when you want to. There's not really any collection. They just kind of come in when they want and leave when they want. We don't, we don't want that. We want, we want to know who is in, who is out. So membership then is kind of the who's who of the gospel. Who is in, who is out. It's good for you to know. It's good for me to know. 
Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5 remind us that there are members who gather again. So just another reason it's all over the place in the New Testament. Therefore, church membership reminds us that being a Christian without a church is like being a bee without a hive. Just isn't in the Bible. Belong to a church, right? There are seasons where we wander and don't have them, but overall your life should be categorized by belonging to a body, right? We come to rehearse the gospel together each Lord's Day. To join a local church means you are converted, you believe what that church believes, followed by baptism. Then you take the family meal. Kind of like you, before you have the rites of marriage, you guys say, I do. And then you have, we're a household, right? We'll say with being a church member. First you say, I do, and then you have communion in the Lord's Supper. Right? That, that's the idea. So therefore, if you've not joined, let me encourage you to speak with me after. Speak with the deacon. Talk about, hey, can I talk about this with you? Can I meet? Can we have lunch? Can I buy you coffee? Can you buy me coffee? <laughs> Whatever, okay? Lastly, number two. <clears throat> what about evangelism? I think that's probably worth noting here, considering I just said, well, if it's not from believers, then how do we get people converted, right? What do we do, Kale? I'm glad that you asked. My hope is that they would come hear the gospel, obviously. Duh, right? But as Christians, this cannot be expected to be the regular, normal way that we evangelize together. That front door is not the main way that we do that. Or it just won't happen. Right? Can we agree on that? Think of man's human nature. Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. Uh-oh. We're in trouble then, aren't we? Right? If, that's, if, it's our, if our front door is our hope, it's not going to happen. Romans 8 says something similar. So we should not re- rely upon conversions and church membership and church growth solely on this. So then, Kale, how do churches normally grow? How do we grow? I've two very simple ones. One is very fun and popular. Evelyn's very unpopular and very scary. Which one do you want first? Fun? Okay, good. Number one, first, and the very, the very short. First, family members. Children, parents, grandparents, grandchildren, uncles, cousins, aunts. They're going to come. Why? You just drag them in, right? You make them come. You love them, make them come, right? This, this is, that's low-hanging fruit. They're, they're going to come. You come with your family, they're going to come with you. There is, that's good. It's beautiful to see a family come together. Love it. It's a gift of grace, right? However, over time, what happens? Well, time happens. People grow up and move, right? They get a job and they move out of state. People die. People grow up, stop coming out, and thought, come, I'm done. People change, right? Demonstrate unbelief whatever that happens so what do you do then what do we do well it's the second unpopular scary way you talk to a non-christian out those doors probably not in, in a cemetery they're all pretty quiet out there but past that somewhere else so the mission of the church is to go and to make disciples to teach them the word of christ to to join god on mission to be a disciple of christ in the world meaning The glory of God, the spreading of the gospel, the reverse of the curse is what we're supposed to do as Christians. So that means, and here this, this should be very encouraging. The growth and life of a church is ahead of you. It's not behind you. Well, those those were the good old days. No, they weren't. It's in front. You have a ton of unbelievers right out there. Do you know that? They are all over the place. It's the good old days are ahead, but you have to go. It's scary. Yes. 
You, you never go alone. What, is it, what does Jesus' name, Emmanuel, mean? What, what's that mean? He's God pretty close to you. Oh, he's with you, right? Therefore, we must go forward. Don't you want to make your life count for the sake of Christ? Don't you? I don't want to waste my life. I need courage. Leonard Ravenhill said it very, kind of like putting a thorn in your shoe. I want to read to you. Could a mariner sit idle as if he heard the man drowning? Could a doctor sit in comfort as his, and let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle while he let men burn and give no hand? Can we sit at ease in Zion with the world around you? Damned. So friends, let me give you some encouragement. Kale, I'm not like you. I'm not a weirdo. Well, you might be a weirdo. I don't talk to strangers. Well, that's okay. So how do I do that? I'll give you very, very short, like one sentence each. Very simple. I'm an introvert. I'm quiet. I'm nervous. How do you talk to me? Number one, join a gym or a club or a sewing club or a clay, whatever. Sit by a person. Talk to them. Open your mouth. Talk to them. They're probably very nice. They probably won't bite you. Get to know them. Pray for them. Look for something in the news. I usually look for death. To be honest with you, someone dies, a celebrity. Hey, did you hear that so-and-so died? Yeah. What do you think about death? Works every time. That's weird. I know. But become a regular with that person. Talk to them. Pray for them. It will come up if you, if you pray for it. Number two, host a neighbor at your house for dinner. Ask them about their weekend. What are they going to say? Oh, we did yada, yada, yada. What are you going to say? Oh, I did this. On Sunday, I went to church. Speaking of that, do you go to church anywhere? Uh-oh. Right? It's very easy. I mean, you'll sweat like a dog. Dogs don't sweat, but it's okay. Number three, very easily, become a regular somewhere. Go to a coffee shop every whatever. Get your, your, your hair cut at the same place every whenever. Go to the gym at the same time every whenever. Become a regular. Ask them next time. Give them a try. Give them, hey, can I read some from the Bible I read this morning? Become a regular. Get to know her. It takes time, but get to know them. It does require courage, but you never go alone. And remember, we are all natural evangelists for the things that we love. If you're a grandparent and you have grandkids, you are your grandkids' best evangelist. I guarantee it. Have you seen them? Right? Right? You do. I know you do. I know you do that. We all do, right? Have you seen my kids? It's easy. Do for Christ. You can do it. But Kale, what if they think I'm weird or dumb or behind the times? They already do. It's okay. Christians are weird. It's okay. But it's true. Blessed are you for your reward in heaven is very great, Jesus says. So therefore we gather to scatter together. The church exists for the advocate, for the growth of the saints and the glory of God. Let's pray.